Well, good evening. If you want to grab a seat and open your Bibles tonight to the book of Hosea. And so you're, you might be wondering, how did we decide to start going through the book of Hosea? Well, here's, here's really, if you want to know the truth, here's, here's what we did. You know, Tim walked outside today and he saw a shadow and he said, well, we better start a six-week series on, in the minor, pro- no, I'm just kidding. That's for, that's for my friend Steve. He, uh, he sent us over that meme today. But we are starting through the book of the, or the book, Minor Prophets. So we will, we will be going through them, not necessarily in order um, that they are in in your Bible, but teaching through the Minor Prophets. So just as a, um, a raise of your hand, how many of you have ever studied the book of Hosea before? A few? Okay, so maybe like five or six. Great. So we get to journey through it together. Well, um, if you didn't already, Tim mentioned that there's this um, pamphlet in the back or this, this piece of paper. You're going to want to get this. It's yours to keep. Um, fold it. Put it in your Bible. I have one from forever ago. Um, it's right here. I just, I just keep it. And it's really, really helpful because what it does is it has all the kings of Israel and whether they are of the line of Judah or, or the line of Israel. And then it also shows you on there all the different prophets and who was prophesying um, at the same time and, and during what reign of the kings. But here's the one thing you, have to, you can't do, okay, that we're asking. Be gracious. Because I, I found this on the internet and I know that it's not perfect. I know that we don't know some of the dates um, exactly and that's okay. It's just a tool to give you and to give me an idea as we're navigating the prophets. So make this yours. Write down on it some important dates as we're going through important dates. But it will be super, super, super helpful um, for you as we go through this. So with that being said, a couple of just um, questions as we start. You might be asking, what is a minor prophet? What is the minor prophets? Well, the Bible, the Old Testament, has, is kind of divided into two different um, sections in the prophecies. There's the major prophets, and then there's 12 minor prophets. But why are they called the minor prophets? It's not because their message is any lesser than that of the major prophets. It's simply that they're just smaller in size. And so it's, it's you know, when we did this in the Bible college, um, we made a graphic for it, and we called it the not, the, a study through the not-so-minor prophets. In terms of we just think minor, that there may be lesser, I don't have to pay attention to it, or maybe uh, their message um, that God has for us in the minor prophets isn't as relatable or as significant as the larger prophets, but that's not so, and we'll see that even tonight. So, uh, the minor prophets, and um, tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Hosea. And so we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Hosea. If you're an outliner or a note taker, I, I like to do that because it helps me as we're going through the book to know kind of where I am and what's the bigger theme in the different sections of the book. Well, Ho- Hosea can be divided up this way. Really, the theme of Hosea is God's unchanging love. God's unchanging, God's unfailing or as one pastor put it, God's unconquerable love. And it can be divided up this way. The, section 1 is chapters 1 through 3, which we're going to cover tonight. And this is the unfaithful wife and the faithful husband. That's chapters 1 through 3. And then it, the second section, really, major section, um, Hosea goes through how um, this is a picture of Israel and the Lord. So that's chapters 4 through 14. And that can be divided up into three subsections where chapters 4 through 8, we have the sin of Israel. So chapters 4 through 8, the sin of Israel. Chapters 9 and 10, the judgment of God. And then finally, chapters 11 through 14, God's restoration of his people. And so that, knowing that background, having that kind of context of where we are in the larger picture of the book, we should help you navigate it as we're walking through Hosea. So a little bit of background, right? If you look on, um, you, can, you can cheat, and it, but it's not really cheating. Uh, but you can reference that handout that we gave you to see when Hosea was prophesying, who was king. But we know um, the author of the book is Hosea. And his, mean, his name means salvation. Hosea, salvation. And, and Hosea, and Tim was mentioning this too as we opened the service. He ministered to the northern tribes. So uh, you have to know this for the minor prophets or it's not going to make sense. 
At mo- during this time, the kingdom is divided into two, it's split. Israel's split. You have Israel in the north, so that's the ten northern tribes. And then you have the two southern tribes, which are referred to as Judah in the south. Jerusalem being um, in the south. And um, so you have to know that. It, it will help you um, be able to make a lot more sense of what's going on and, and to be able to see the picture. So we don't know much about um, Hosea himself, except for his name, and, and um, we'll see a little bit about his children, his, his wife. We, don't, we aren't told of his occupation like some of the other prophets, but we do know um, <laughs> that he is the na- he's the son of, of B- Biri. I don't know too much about him, but as we step back, and, and I, I like to do this because if you can understand the bigger picture— kind of looking at the, the forest before you get into the trees. It, it, again, it helps you as we're navigating and walking through the forest. So the life of Hosea, we see that simply this book, Hosea, his life lived out. He marries a prostitute who is unfaithful to him. Yet his love for his, in his love for his wife, he buys her out of prostitution and, and loves her. So this is his life lived out. And it's a message for Israel. The Lord is going to use Hosea and his love for his wife, his re- buying her back out of slavery, out of bondage, is a message for, to the Lord of, for his people who were living in unfaithfulness to him, in idolatry. And this is God's heart demonstrated through a life of a man and yet, today, we, you know, this is still applicable. It's, there's living messages, as one pastor puts it, for us today. A couple of those, there's many, but I'm just going to point out two for us as we start the book tonight. It's a vivid picture of, of God's heart and how God sees idolatry in our lives. But you see, oftentimes, idolatry, we don't, we don't really think about it here in America or in or in Pittsburgh, right? Because we don't have um, little wooden carving, carvings of statues or, or we're not bowing down to posters per se. But there's idols. There's idols. And, and it opens our eyes to see that. God wants us to be um, shocked by, by it. We'll, we'll go through that. That we might repent and, and, and be healed. But not only that, we also see a picture of God's unchanging and unconquering love for, for you. Because guess what? Those of us who have even given our lives to Christ, each of us has committed adultery against the Lord in serving another idol, serving another God. So we see Hosea applicable today. So let's start um, chapter 1, the book of Hosea, and we'll, the goal tonight, we'll go through chapters 1 through 3, Lord willing. So chapters 1 through 3, the unfaithful wife and the faithful husband. Starting with verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this is really an introduction, a background, kind of setting the stage of, of what's going on in Israel, of, of the timeline when Hosea is ministering. So we referenced earlier the kingdom is split, right? There's the northern ten. And, and throughout the book of Hosea, um, Hosea references Israel, the northern ten, uh, as Israel, or you, he also refers to them as Ephraim. So you want to note that. I think it's... Um, 32 or 37 times Ephraim is mentioned. And Ephraim is the largest and the most um, influential tribe in the north. So they have much influence into what's going on. So he, he often refers to those northern group of um, tribes as Ephraim. Also, we know he mentioned here, it's during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now you have to note that this is Jeroboam the second. So there's two Jeroboams if you look on your list. This is Jeroboam the second. So also ministering in the north is Amos. He's on the scene. He, he's sharing. He's prophesying. And this is all happening before Assyria would come and take the, the ten northern tribes, carry Israel captive. So this is before the first captivity. Now at the same time, we see that there's four kings mentioned 
in, uh, um, in the southern tribes, so in Judah. There's four different kings mentioned, and it's interesting, why four versus one? Well, one, one commentator said this, the Lord in mentioning the four kings of the south is saying it's because he's emphasizing his covenant through David, right? David would be of the southern tribes. So Isaiah would be on the scene in the south, ministering and prophesying to the, the people at that time. But it's important. If you go back and, and if you read through Kings and um, the book of First and Second Kings and kind of set yourself of what's actually happening within the nation at this time, we see that it's, it's very dark days for Israel. Very dark days deep in sin. So you, you remember after Solomon died, right? We had King um, Saul and, and, and then after Saul was David. And when David passed off the scene, Solomon... His son reigned in his place. But do you remember when Solomon died? That's when this, this split happened. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he, he became king in the south. And then um, Jeroboam I, who was Solomon's service, servant, he, he set up camp up in the north. And what, did, what, did, what do we know that Jeroboam did when, when he went up north? Remember that the Lord had commanded Israel, his people, that they were to continually go back throughout the year, right? And, and have these uh, celebrations, go back to, to Jerusalem for these feasts. But Jeroboam, he knew that that posed a threat, right? Man, the, all, the, all the tribes, these, these 10 tribes, they're going to be going to the southern kingdom? And what happens? I, I don't want to lose my influence. I don't want to um, lose my, my kingdom, per se. I want to keep it intact. And so what he did is he set up two golden calves. And he, he didn't say that they're not God. They're a representation of God um, in the northern tribes. And so he's, he told the people, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem now. You don't have to obey the Lord. This is convenient. Just stay here, right? And sometimes that's easy to, to not worship the Lord how he instructs us to worship. And we'll see that that, that led to idolatry, right? Because now I'm making an image of God. I'm, I don't want to worship him in the way that he's commanded. But this began um, Israel, the northern tribes, starting down the path of of, of idolatry. It's how it entered in. Years later, now they're steeped deep within it. Not only that, but if you go back and if you look at the kings, what they were doing is they would oftentimes set up um, alliances, right? They would say, oh, well, um, you know, their, their enemies, they'd go and, and say, we'll, we'll pay you so much gold or whatever it may be to, to not fight against us and to be on our side. And so there would often times with that, uh, there would be marriage relationships that would be entered into these, these pagan and Gentile nations now, right? And, and the king would marry the, uh, a relative, their daughter, whatever it may be, their son. And this would, again, open the gate for pagan worship and for idol worship into the nation. And so slowly but surely they fell. And that's, it's subtle, isn't it? And that's how it happens in our lives. Idol worship just enters in. We don't even realize it. Just little compromises, convenience, political moves, wanting to hold on to our kingdoms. And so <laughs> we know that the nation's at this, at this point now. So God's ministering to them. He's sending the, them these prophets that they would see, that they would repent, that they would turn and, and allow the Lord to heal them. At the same time, it's also interesting as we go through many of these prophets, while morally and in the eyes of the Lord, it's a time of darkness from the world's perspective, everything's great. The nation is prospering economically. And yet, God would say, I'm not pleased. And, and, and he with, um, draws his blessing. So verse 2, we see here, says that when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So we're introduced here, um, the Lord ministering, him speaking to Hosea. And we know that as we continue to go on, Ho Hosea's wife, who, who he takes, is Gomer. And we see, we're told that she is a harlot, or, or that word means a prostitute. Now, 
I know the first thing probably that popped into your head. Are you kidding me? The Lord would command a prophet, one of his people, to marry a prostitute? And you see, there's different schools of thought here. Some say that um, she was not a prostitute when they first got married. But this is Hosea writing after the fact, the Lord knowing that when he commanded Hosea to marry her, that she would um, give herself to um, prostitution. So there's that school of thought. Some say, well, no, she was a prostitute at that time, and this is simply the Lord's command. But there's a third um, group of, or, or way of thinking that says that there's no way that God would ever ask his, somebody of, of Israel, right, of, of his prophets, of uh, those who he would call to do this into the ministry to marry a prostitute. Now, we're not exactly sure. The Lord doesn't tell us. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak where the word is silent. But personally, I'm convicted that it's probably definitely one of the first two. I don't think it necessarily matters as much which one. But why not the third? Why isn't this not just an allegorical picture? Well, you see, if the Lord would never ask his people to do that, that that impacts for you and for me. Because when did the Lord save us? Not when we were faithful to him, not when we were loyal to him, not when there wasn't other loves, other affections in our life, but when we were going after other gods. When we are serving something else or someone else, something to fulfill us, something to give us meaning. See, and it's then when God sent his son to, to redeem us and to buy us out of that. And if, and if God's able and if God's willing to do that, then, you know, I think it, it certainly stands that Hosea, his servant and his minister is able and would. But even as we go through this, right, this... <laughs> The prophet of God marrying a prostitute. What happens is when you, when you hear that, there's that shock factor, right? Like, oh my gosh, right? We, we, we might think, what's, who's your favorite prophet? Or, or who's your favorite Old Testament character? Probably one of the uh, last people, I would say maybe the last two, would probably be Job and Hosea, right? Nobody wants to be, go through the ministry that Job had or the ministry that Hosea had. And when we think about this, the reality of, of, of a husband or a wife, that close one, forsaking us, committing adultery, continued, right? Not just one time, selling themselves, and then going and taking them back. The love, the forgiveness, all of that, God does that intentionally because that's something that we can relate to. That's something that we're at that point, see, as we let this, as we sit with it and really let the Lord work in our hearts, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. And that's what God's intention was even for the people at that time, right? As they would watch Hosea live this out, they would be shocked at the reality of that's the Lord's heart for me. The, the disgusting, the blackness, the, just the putrid of what Gomer did in her lifestyle. See, I don't see idolatry in my own life that way. But the word says that's, that's how I view it. That's my heart for it. And the word, you know, through Hosea, it was calling his people to wake up. And I think the same for us. Some of us need to wake up. To wake up and to see the sickness of sin. But the Lord allowed Hosea to have a sense of his heart. Because what Hosea experienced on a personal front was what the Lord was experiencing with his people. One pastor said it this way. He said, it's the book book of Hosea which we most hear the heartbeat of God. And what do we mean by that? Well, you know Philippians 3.10. There, Pastor Paul, he writes this. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, when we go through sufferings, when we go through difficulties in life, very hard things, and we walk through that with somebody else or somebody we can relate to, maybe somebody who's gone through that same experience, there's, there's this connection that happens, right? Some of you that have played football, you know what football camp is like, two-a-days, three-a-days putting the pads on, being so sore you don't even want to get out of bed, right? But those of you who have not played football, you can't relate to that. It's not a bad thing, you just simply can't. But on the same tone, right, taking this in reality, the death of a parent, 
the death of a loved one. You know, until you walk through that, um, somebody might say, I'm sorry, I, you know, um, I'm hurting for you, I'm, I'm praying for you. But you know that they, unless that person's actually been there, they, they haven't been touched with that. They, 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 they might mean well, but they, they really don't know. Well, the Lord's saying here, Hosea, I'm, giving, I'm allowing you to enter into that, that fellowship of, of suffering, that intimacy. And we don't always like that. I, I don't, because it's difficult and it's hard. But it's there oftentimes where the Lord meets us deeply, where he speaks to us, and, and where we really feel his heartbeat. One pastor, Ironside, he said this, and if you want this quote afterwards, let me know. It's a longer quote, but it's a challenging quote. Listen to this. He said, We live in an age when everything good is interpreted in terms of happiness and success. So when we think of spiritual blessing, we think, we think of it in these terms. To be led of God and to be blessed by God means that we will be happy and successful. In fact, if a Christian does not appear to be happy or successful, there are scores of people who will be ready, like Job's counselors, to work with him or her to see what's wrong. This is shallow thinking and shallow Christianity. For God does not always lead his people into ways that we would naturally regard as happy or as filled with success. Was Jesus happy? He was undoubtedly filled with joy and with all other fruits of the Spirit. But he was also called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Was Jesus successful? Not by our standards, nor by any standards that we might have, been applied, that we might have applied to him or any, anyone living at that time. Let us put down this great principle. God sometimes leads his children to do things that afterward involve them in great distress, But because God does not think as we think or act as we act, it is often in those situations that he accomplishes his greatest victories and brings the greatest blessing to his name. And we see that lived out in the life of Hosea. We see that in the fellowship of the sufferings that we go through. As the Lord asks us, you know, to to maybe forgive somebody in in a situation that from a world's perspective is unforgivable. As he allows us to be touched with the pain of death or of sickness, whatever it may be, the fellowship of his sufferings. And so I hope that you're even encouraged in that. But we keep talking about it, kind of alluding to it. But what is the adultery that Israel is committing? Well, the Bible tells us this in Exodus 34, verses 14 through 16. There, the Lord goes into this, and, and he plainly says there, for you shall not worship For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play, catch this, the harlot with their gods. You see, adultery, harlotry, when there's idol worship, the Lord is saying, that's adultery with me. And you make sacrifices to their gods. And in one of And one of them invites you and you eat his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So we know this, right? Isaiah 54 verses 4 through 6. The word says there, he calls Israel, he refers to them as his bride. He sees them as his bride. That's who he is. And when they go and, and when they start making these sacrifices, when they worship other gods, when they allow that to enter in, they're letting another love. They're setting their affection upon another, a, a God other than the Lord, Jehovah. And he says, that's harlotry. That's prostituting yourself. That's loving somebody else in that way. You see, and the same thing is true for us when we go after other idols, Fantastic though, right? I don't have idols. I, I remember um, I remember we went to Hawaii and my, my uh, uncle was in the Navy there and he married, uh, my aunt, is, uh, she, she worshipped uh, Buddha. And I remember going up and like outside of their house there was um, a little bowl with white rice in it. And I'm like, why is there rice? Do they eat dinner outside? I, I don't know. 
Well, and, and, you know, the, you go in and there's all these golden statues to Buddha and everything like that. But you, you see, like, that's, when I think of idol worship today, that's what I think of idol worship. But Tim Keller said it this way, and this is, this is convicting. He says, an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have meaningful life if you lose it. What came to your mind when I read that? What was it that, that could never be taken away? What, what is it in our lives that, that has so much weight, so much um, impact that the moment that's taken away, there's, I, I, all my life is gone. That's an idol. He says, idolatry is anything you look at and in, in your heart of hearts you say, if I have that, then my life has value, then my life has meaning. And if I lose that, I don't know how I would live. See, that's something that we, it might not be a statue per se, we might not be bowing down to it, but in our hearts, we are. And one of my prayers through this is that the Lord would convict me and convict us as a body, as a church of of idols that we have. That our affections would not be divided. That, you know, and and I pray that you would be honest with yourself. Is there an idol in your heart? Is there an idol in your life? And God's not condemning us, but I pray that we would yield to his conviction and let him heal us of that. See, their affection was not setting, was not set on the Lord, but notice they still had all kinds of forms of worship. They had forms of religion. And that's a warning too, even as a church. We can be in religious activity, but still have idols present. And so, all of this, all of this we see though, um, speaking of idolatry, speaking of this harlotry, now you know what it is as we walk through it. Hmm. So, God God used this as a picture to Israel to see their own sins, and, and again, as, as we would see our own sin. But notice this, that the object of God's love, Hosea's love was set upon Gomer, his wife, as we're going to, it was set. Nothing could change that. We mentioned it earlier. Do you know that God's love is set upon you? Do you know that even in our idol worship, God's love for you doesn't change? He might remove his hand of blessing, but his love, his steadfast love, doesn't change. God's, notice that Israel is also the object, object of God's grace. In what Hosea does, and we're going to look at it tonight, specifically in chapter 3, is all grace. Gomer didn't deserve his love. Israel, as, as we see, doesn't deserve God's love. You and I don't deserve God's love. So even, you know, as the Lord starts to convict us, and maybe he's convicting um, some of us now, God's not condemning, but he's graciously offering this opportunity to repent and to be healed. But notice this, he goes on here. So he, he, he says, this is, uh, Hosea, this is what you're to do. So Hosea is obedient to the Lord. He takes Gomer. And notice in verse three, he starts to have kids. Right, So when he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of um, Diblaim, and she conceived and she bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, we are told here that this is Hosea's son. And Jezreel means scattered or, or sown. And it can, it can have two different implications, right? If it, it could be sown in a good way, scattering seed, or it can be sown in a bad way, right, of disbursement. Well, here, it's, mean, uh, it's speaking of the disbursement, the, how the Lord will discipline Israel's wickedness and the sin of his people. So the context of this, what, what in the world is he talking about? I will b- avenge the blood of Jezreel on the, on the house of Jehu. 
See, that's why it's important to know the context of, of kings and what was happening at that time. You can go back and read um, 1 Kings 21, uh, verses 23 there. There we see that Jehu, he killed we, the wicked Jezebel. You know Jezebel, right? So he kills her. And then not only, and, and that was a commandment of the Lord, but what did Jehu continue to do? Well, we're told in 2 Kings uh, chapter 10, verse 11 there, that he didn't stop at just killing Jezebel. Uh, uh, Jezebel, but he went on and he killed the 70 sons of Ahab. He went beyond what God prescribed or God, God commanded him to do. And the Lord said that he would avenge the blood that Jehu took. That wasn't God's command. God said, I, I'm going to avenge Jehu's blood for the 70 sons that you killed. Um, and Zechariah, Jehu's descendant, ultimately was killed, putting an end to Jehu's descendant reigning. So God's prophecy here ultimately was fulfilled. That's in 2 Kings 15, verses 8 through 12. You can go back and read that. We know, too, that, that um, the Lord would fulfill this um, to Israel as a nation when the Assyria, Assyrian army came and, and would carry them away captive. And that's in 2 Kings 17, 23. What happened? Right, The Assyrians, they started to scatter the people. They didn't take them to one place, but they were scattered across a a large area. This is God's discipline upon his people. We'll keep going on. Verse 6. And she, or Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Rehumah. You know, uh, Olivia and she always, this is just a girl thing, right? They like baby names and and I, I'm just surprised she doesn't pull any of these baby names from um, the, the book of Hosea. But maybe after reading this, she'll get some good ones. But call her name Lo, Rehumah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away captive. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by the sword, or, or excuse me, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. So we see here, he's to name um, Gomer's second daughter, Lo-Rehumah, which means no more mercy. Now the implication there, did you notice a difference between um, Hosea's, uh, excuse me, Gomer's first child? It says it was um, Hosea's son. Here we're not specifically told that this child is Hosea's. So many believe that this is um, a child of her adultery, of her prostitution. This isn't um, Hosea's daughter. And the word is saying here, through the name of Lo-Rehuma, that there's going to come a time where his mercy um, for a season is withdrawn. He won't have mercy on them anymore, but he'll allow them to experience the judgment. And we know that that's true, right? Second Peter 3.9. That for a time, for this season, God is being merciful. He's not willing that any should repent, but that all should come to everlasting life. That they, He's giving them an opportunity to turn to Christ. But there is a time, there is a day, right? No man knows that hour or when that will be, when the judgment of God will come. And so even tonight, if you've never given your life to Christ, don't take God's mercy for granted. His mercy is intentional. He's giving you this opportunity. Man, tonight, let today be the day of salvation. And then finally, keep going on, verse 8. Now when she had weaned Lo-Rehumah, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So here we see again the implication that this is not Hosea's child, but Gomer's child of prostitution, of her adultery uh, lifestyle. But again, um, the Lord's saying through Lo-Ami, you are not your pe- my people. But if you go and actually look at the, um, what the um, Hebrew words there, what this actually is interpret- interpreted as, it, it is, I, I am not, I am to you. You remember that, remember when Moses was at the burning bush and God said, go back to uh, my people in, in, in Egypt? And Moses said, well, who am I to say sent me? And God said, what? I am, right? I am that I am. And that's what they, Jehovah, right? I am. 
Well, here the Lord's saying, I am not I am any longer to you. I'm not your God. You have given yourself over to other gods. But notice verse 10. We see here a glimmer of hope. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appointed appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Say to your brethren, my people, and say and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So we see here, God still has yet a promise of future restoration. So even in the midst of this, God says, I'm going to give you over. I'm gonna, Assyria is going to come. They're going to take you captive. You're going to be scattered. I'm going to withdraw my mercy and let the, my discipline come upon you. Yet I'm not done with you, Israel. And that's important to know. God isn't done with Israel. See, the grace of God enters. His grace. Even Jezreel, where there was this great um, blood, that amount of bloodshed, there, there were all these slaughters. He's saying that, that one day I, I will restore this. I will redeem it. And, and they'll say no longer about the bloodshed of Jezreel, but how great it is, the restoration. The Lord's not finished with them in spite of their rejection. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this is in the millennial reign, right? Where Christ comes and he, he sets up his kingdom here upon the earth. And, and Israel recognizes him as king. And there, it, it mentions there in verse 11, right? They'll appoint them for themselves one head. We know that that is Christ again. But I'm so encouraged that when we're, even when we're unfaithful, God is still faithful, isn't he? See, again, don't take God's mercy for granted tonight. God is calling. God is bidding you to give your life to Christ, to repent. But he goes on here and he talks here about the unfaithfulness of of Gomer or the unfaithfulness of his people. So chapter 2, verse 2, he said, Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Let her put away, let her put away her harlotries from my, her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day when she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are not or excuse me, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So the Lord here describes Israel's unfaithfulness. Notice at the beginning of verse 2, he says, bring a charge against your mother. Bring charges. So this language here of bringing a charge is, is, is a legal charge, right? It's, it's a legal case, like a court case. In essence, he's saying, Israel, you're guilty. For Hosea, right, Gomer, you're guilty of adultery. But he wants his people to see that, that this is serious, Right, legally, Gomer was guilty, and that, that resulted, what, did, what do we know that the Lord says that those who commit adultery, what, what was the punishment? They were to be stoned, right? They were to be put to death. That's the result of our sin, right? Legally, from God's um, perspective, from the law, man, when the law enters in, we see that we are condemned, that we deserve death. And, and she said there, did you notice in verse 5, for she said, I will go after my lovers. Israel had left the Lord in going after other idols. That's key. She forsook God. God never forsook her. The Lord kept his covenant. He was faithful. 
But as we look at this, the Lord allowed Israel to go after these other gods. That, that's what love is, right? Love is not forced. Love is not, not, um, it's not the hand, right, forcing her. But God said, love has that freedom. And I will let you go. I will. Israel continued to want to go down that path, and he gave her over to that. And it's interesting. The Lord can do that, right? Give us over if we continue to pursue idols. If we say, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to heed, and we, we continue to um, deny the conviction um, as he convicts us through his word by the Holy Spirit, eventually he will just let us go. And we will go after these other lovers. Notice, uh, we're told more about this in Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, verse 1, there the word says, Where's the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away, or which my creditors, or of which of my creditors um, is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and your transgressions your mother has uh, been put away. The word's saying there, I have not divorced you. I have not sold you to, into slavery to pay a debt that I had. The Lord doesn't have a debt. But you have sold yourself because of your iniquities. In pursuing other loves, other passions, other effects, the Lord is saying to us that you and I, that we are selling ourselves over to those things. We are now becoming mastered to them. We become um, in bondage to them, enslaved to them. It's not something to mess with. Isaiah 52, 3, the word says there that you have sold yourself for nothing, but you shall be redeemed, and you shall be redeemed without money. Again, sometimes we think, well, I, if I just give myself over to that, right? If I just finally get that job title or, or this um, income figure in the bank, that, that maybe I look this certain way, whatever it may be, then, then I'll have something in return. But the word's saying there in Isaiah 52, 3, you have sold yourself for nothing. And that's what Ecclesiastes teaches us, right? All these other pursuits, they are but vanity. So the Lord has not been the one to break the covenant, but Israel sold themselves. Um, I love that because John six thirty seven says this, there Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You see, when we come to Christ, when we repent, when we turn to him and we give ourselves to, to Christ, we ask him to be our savior, he says, I won't cast you out. God will never um, break his covenant, that marriage covenant with us. And I love that confidence that we, ha- that we can have. Yet I want to examine my life and ask, ask, ask the Lord, am I going after other lovers? Are you selling yourself? Am I selling myself into the bondage of sin? See, we see here that Israel soon forgot the source of their blessing as the Lord. Did you notice that in verse 5? She said, I will go after my, other lover, after my lovers. And then she said this, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So what do you think, or who do you think, what is the source of all that you have in life? Right? Is it really that job that, that is, provides that income, that gives you the food, or, or whatever it may be, right? Ultimately, it, it goes back to the Lord. And see, in Israel, refused to recognize Lord, the Lord as the source of their blessing because they didn't want to recognize him as the Lord. And if, and, if, and if I can muster this up, if it's this other source, if it's the hand of my own doing, right? Then I, in essence, I'm, I kind of make myself my own Lord. Or maybe I serve my job and, and that's, that's where I'm getting all this satisfaction, all that I'm looking for. And Israel fell into that. And it's interesting. Remember Paul said in Romans um, one twenty one. remember Paul said there that they were no longer thankful. And I think that's, a, that's a, something that's important to examine. Have we stopped being thankful to the Lord? 
And, and that, the Lord can use that to be a warning sign. Like, what happens uh, right before something, when your car starts to go out, there's little check engine lights before it blows, right? The check engine lights come on. I think I have like two or three of them right now in my car. And that's an indicator, hey, something's, something's going to happen, right? Something needs examined. Let's take care of this before you're, you're stuck on the interstate and uh, you have to call AAA. And that's what the Lord does even now, right? Have you become unthankful? The Lord says that, that starts to lead down a path of idolatry, of worshiping other gods. But notice what the Lord does here. Verse 6. He says, in spite of all of this, although you have gone after other lovers, although you have stopped being thankful, he says, therefore... So in light of this, this is my response. Behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will uh, chase her lovers, but, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and her gold, which they prepared for Baal. So we see here, like Job, do you remember in Job, the word says that he hedged Job around? That hedging was a hedge of protection. Well, here, the word says, in a sense, (laughs) uh, I'm going to hedge my people, Israel, but that hedging, hedging is protection and not allowing them to be able to succeed in what they continually to pursue. He says, he'll, you'll chase after these other lovers, but you'll never be able to get on that, that path. You, you won't be able to find it. And notice, he says there in verse 7, that the people would say, I, I will go and return to my first husband. In essence, they, would, they say that they'll repent and, and turn to God, but there's no evidence here that they actually did repent right? Simply confession of our mouth is not repentance, but confession with our mouth begins, and then repentance is shown by our actions and by our lives. There was no reality for Israel. Notice this. Keep going on verse 9. Therefore, I will return and, and take away my grain in its time, my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. So the word says, I will remove the blessings that I have given to you. Verse 10, and now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause her myrrh to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and, and her fig trees, of which she said, Those are my, these are my wages, that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beast of all the fields shall eat them, and I will punish her for the days of Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and with jewelry, and she went after her lovers, but she forgot me, says the Lord. So we see here that we know Israel didn't return to the Lord, so he removes their blessing. Notice in verse 9, he says that he will expose their sin, And you know that that's merciful of God to expose their sin, right? In essence, he tried to deal with them in private, but he says, "Now, now I will expose it. It will be in the open, not to shame you, not to condemn you, but again, his heart is for repentance, that they would return to him. Verse 11, notice there was much religious activity. There was, man, the Sabbath, they were still honoring the Sabbath, right? Keeping the law. There was, they were celebrating um, their feast days, But still, there was no reality. There was no reality of that. In all of this, God was giving the people over to what they desire. That reminds me of Jeremiah 2.9, where there the Lord says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. See, this isn't God, God's hand coming on them, but in removing his hand of blessing, he's saying your own sins, your own iniquities are finding you out. 
And it's actually their own sin that's correcting them in this. So notice verse 14. We see even in spite of all this, right? God says, you continue, you don't want to repent. You continue to go after other lovers. You don't want anything to do with me. You know, at that point, what's from my reaction, I'd say, well, forget you. Or I'd say, come on. You, you want this? I'm going to, I'll show you who really is in charge here, right? And, and whop them upside the head. <laughs> Never mind. So look what the Lord does. This is the heart of God. The Lord says in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Or that means I will woo her, I will draw her, and will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. That's not what my reaction would be. To take her to the wilderness and, and, and to speak comfort, I'd say, let's go behind the shed and, and I'll, get, I'll get the belt out, right? And, and that, we'll correct you that way. But that's not the heart of God. That, see, this, you see God's heartbeat here? And sometimes we view the Lord in that way, that God's just taking us uh, behind the woodshed and, and correcting us. He disciplines us, right? But notice his heart. Notice first, where does he say that I will, I will draw her to, I will take her to? The wilderness. Well, what do you know about the wilderness? What do I know about the wilderness? Well, I know, number one, that I probably wouldn't survive very long in the wilderness, right? I have no survival, survival skills. My necessities are all stripped away. I know, to, I know that probably after a day, my cell phone would be dead, and uh, therefore I couldn't go on the internet, no calls, texts, um, none of that. So if I were to be stuck in the wilderness, I'd be hungry, and instead of worrying about, is Tom Brady retiring or is he not retiring— by checking ESPN or maybe all the work emails or, or sending that meme to my friend because my phone doesn't work anymore, I'd start to really listen to the Lord. I'd start let, you know, letting those things distract me to, because I don't want to deal with my sin or I don't want to deal with that thing that God's putting his finger on in my life. See, all, when God takes us to the wilderness, oftentimes it's that place of everything's stripped away and taken away so then we can finally, we'll finally just sit with him, right? And, and hear him. And you know that God does that with his people. Remember, when they came out of Egypt, where did they go? They went to the wilderness where God would teach them and he would prepare them to enter the promised land. Do you remember um, John the Baptist when he was, baptizing, preparing the way for the Lord, where did the people go? They went to the wilderness to be baptized. Do you remember um, Paul the apostle, as he was called by God and then prepared? He had a time in the wilderness with the Lord. So God says, right, go, uh, go to the wilderness, and there I'm going to speak words of comfort to you, not words of con condemnation. Sometimes we think what, that when we're in that wilderness season of life, when the Lord allows those things to be stripped away and we're sitting there, that God then wants to just beat me up and lay it all on me. We feel condemned. That's Satan. God says, I'm not condemning you, but I'm going to speak these words of comfort to you. Notice verse 15, he says, these are the words of comfort. He says, I will give her vineyards from there. And in the valley of Achor, as a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. So he says there in the wilderness, this comfort that I will speak to you, he says, he talks about this door of hope. And he refers to the valley of Achor. And you, you know, because right, you're Bible students, uh, Joshua chapter 7, it was there when Achan took of the spoils of, of the victory right? And he hid them. The Lord said, all the spoils are to be mine. N you're not to take them. They're to be set apart unto me. And, and he, Achan took them. 
and he hid them in his tent, and his sin was found out, right? The Lord knew. He hid it from everybody else, but it wasn't hidden from the Lord. And, and what happened? Achan and his family, they, they were put to death in, in the valley of Achor. So, so from Israel's mind, if, if you were to talk about the valley of Achor, you're, you're thinking of death, of condemnation. Well, the Lord is saying that there, in that valley where there was death, there you're going to find this door of hope. This, th- these words of comfort, but, but what is that hope? Man, write this down. John 12, 27. John 12, 27. There, Jesus says this. He says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but it is for this reason that I came for this hour. See, in the valley, in, in where there was no hope, in the valley of death and condemnation, there Jesus went. And where we were, we have our sin, right? We, we have sinned and we deserve to be stoned to death. We deserve, and we're in trouble. There Jesus said, I came and, and my heart is now troubled. Because there's, my sin, your sin, he bore upon himself. Not only that, but Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone hears me, or excuse me, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You see, this comfort, this, this hope in the valley of trouble is Jesus. Because it's Jesus who bore our sins. It's Jesus who took my condemnation upon himself. And now he says, just enter in. The door is here. I've made the way back to the Father. And that's what, that's what he, he, when he, when he takes us to those times of, of, of in the wilderness, He's not giving us self-help programs, but he points us back to Christ. And he says, it's the gospel is the answer. Not some self-help help program. Not pat yourself and, and justify yourself. No, it's, it's found in what Jesus did at the cross. And that's our hope. And if you're in trouble tonight, man, just get away. Go to the wilderness. Just sit with him. Look at the gospel. Remember the gospel. Meditate on that. That's our hope. But he keeps going on in verse 16, and he says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. Notice there's there's intimacy, there's restoration, there's reconciliation that happens. And you will no longer call me my master. What happens when when we go and and we go back to the cross and we look at the gospel? We turn, our hearts are reoriented from the Lord being our master, right, just simply our, a slave driver, a master, and we're reminded of that intimacy, that he's our husband, he's our lover. He keeps going on, for, for I will take away, or I will take from her mouth the names of Baal, and, and they shall be remembered by their names no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. This is the new covenant of grace um, that he's referring to. With the beasts of the fields and with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword, of battle, I will shatter them from the earth to make them lie down safely. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass, verse 21, in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer with grain and new wine and with oil they shall answer Jezreel then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on um, her who had not obtained mercy then I will say to those who are not my people you are my people and they shall say you are my God notice that there's restoration and did you catch all the I wills from the Lord He's not saying that you will, that you'll improve your behavior, that you will do this. He's saying, this is me. This is the cov- that's the covenant of grace, right? It's about what he would do. But we know that um, Jer- Jeremiah 31 speaks of this new covenant, where God would write his law upon our hearts. But nevertheless, keep going on, um, finishing it out, because we're running out of time here. Chapter 3, thankfully it's only um, five verses, so we can do it. So we see Hosea's faithfulness in chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love 
a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her verse 2 for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too, I will be towards you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or, ter- or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So notice here that Gomer's lifestyle had led to her, her being sold into sin, right? Whatever it may be, she's, she's now become a prostitute. She's someone's slave. And the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to go down to the market. Imagine this. Go down to the market where they're going to be auctioning off these slaves, you know, they would be, the slaves would be naked at that time. Shame, right? And I want you to buy your wife back. Can you imagine what that would be like if you were Gomer? Man, you've, you've been unfaithful to your husband, and who do you see unfaithful time and time again? And who do you see standing in the crowd bidding for you? And it says that, that she was bought for 15 shekels of silver. That's half the price of a slave right? Half the price of, of a slave and one and one half barley. I just, you know, is that all that um, Hosea had at the time he gave her all for? I don't know. Maybe he didn't have like 16 shekels. All he had maybe was 15, and he, but he, ha- he knew he had some barley. And, and he gave it all to buy her back, to redeem her, to take her again to himself. Man, what a potent picture of, of God's love for you and for me. Notice it says in verse one again, it says that the Lord said to me, go. See, it wasn't enough for Hosea just to say that he loved Gomer with his words or to, you know, to put a nice Valentine's Day Instagram post or Facebook post that how much he loved her, even though she was being unfaithful. But the Lord asked, asked Hosea to do something really difficult that would be costly. And and I love this because sometimes the Lord asks us to do that, right? See, there's people in our life who, who have hurt us, who we don't want to forgive. And the Lord asks us to go to them and to love them. And there's no way that we can do that in and of ourselves. But you see, the Bible tells us that Christ has been He's our faithful high priest, that he's been tempted in all ways as we are. And he knows what it's like to go through this. See, because when we sold ourselves to sin, when we are slaves to sin, that's when Christ went. That's when, as the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love towards us. He went. And that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this action sermon that Hosea was preaching to the nation and to, and to Gomer herself, the Lord says, this is my heart for you. I mean, all of us who have given ourselves to another lover, another affection, another God, God has redeemed you out of that. And he's bought you back. But it's not with 15 shekels of silver and, and one and one half um, homers of barley, but the Bible tells us in Peter that it's been, you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God has set you free. You no longer have to be a slave to that idol. You might have given yourself over to that sin for years and years, but the word says, I've bought you back. Now walk in that freedom. Not only, you know, have I loved you in word, but it's been demonstrated at the cross of Christ. See, Hosea had a decision to make. Would he go? Would he obey the Lord? And even tonight, some of us have a decision to make. 
Whatever God's asking you to do, if it's that idol, if it's that sin he's asking you to repent of, it might be hard. It might cost you something. You know, if I, if, if I put myself in Hosea's shoes, I'd probably be pretty embarrassed, just to be honest with you. How shameful would it be to be standing there and to, to be buying back your wife? And everybody knows what she's done. But, that did, but he still went and he did it. And sometimes our feelings aren't there at first, or we don't want to. But God says, go and be obedient, and I'll take care of the rest. And see, that's why not only has he redeemed us, but he's given resurrection power. We don't do this. We don't operate um, just by our own strength. But you've been given the Holy Spirit. Man, in our lives, there's no shame you know, of, of our idolatry and of our, our adultery to the Lord. We don't boast in that, but God saved us from that. And now we can let our lives speak just as Hosea's and Gomer's life was speaking to all those around them of God's unconquerable love, of God's grace to save those who have no hope, those who have given themselves over. And so Father, we thank you tonight Lord, for, for your love that isn't just theoretical. Lord, it's just not words on a page, but, but your love is a reality. And so, Lord, I pray tonight for, for any of us in this room or any of us listening, God, who have never experienced that love for ourselves, Lord, that tonight would be the day of salvation, that you would draw them, that you would woo them to that place where they finally say yes to you. Lord, and we ask that even tonight that you would fill us afresh with your spirit, God, that we don't want to be um, a people who go through the religious motions, who, who celebrate the quote-unquote feast, and, and Lord, have our church services, but Lord, um, don't, don't and aren't obedient in the hard and the difficult things, Lord, that you ask us to live out in life. But we want to say yes to you. God, not for our glory, not so people think highly of um, us or a CCSP as a church, Lord, but so that our lives may speak that our lives would be different and point others back to you. And then, Lord, we can just say, this is only by the Lord that I can do this. So, Lord, would you be glorified even in this, in this fellowship, Lord, and, 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 and in our lives tonight. So, Lord, we thank you for your love that's never failing, that's never changing. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So.